Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Let me thank the Koch brothers of all people for sponsoring a study that shows that Medicare for All would save the American people $2 trillion over a 10-year period. I suspect that that is not what the Koch brothers intended to do, but that is what is in the study of the Mercatus Center, an organization that is significantly funded by the Koch brothers. At a time when the United States spends far more per capita on healthcare than any other country on earth, almost 18% of our GDP, a Medicare for all healthcare system would save the average family significant sums of money. It will do that by substantially reducing the administrative costs now taking place as a result of the billing, bureaucracy, and insatiable greed within the insurance industry, whose main function in life is not to make people well, but to make stockholders incredibly rich. If we can get rid of the profiteering, the dysfunction, and the incredible waste within the current healthcare system, if we get rid of the advertising and the high-priced compensation packages of healthcare executives, we can save hundreds of billions of dollars each and every year. Medicare for All will also significantly reduce the rapidly escalating and outrageous cost of prescription drugs. Depending on income, an individual may pay a little bit more in taxes to finance Medicare for All, but they will save thousands of dollars each and every year because they will no longer be paying insurance company premiums, deductibles, or co-payments to the private for-profit companies that now run our healthcare system. Today, under our current dysfunctional healthcare system, believe it or not, it costs more than $28,000 a year to provide healthcare to the typical family of four. $28,000 a year. Those costs will go down, not up, under a Medicare for All system. Here is the bottom line. If every major country on earth can guarantee health care to all and achieve better health care outcomes while spending substantially less per capita than we do, please do not tell me that the United States of America cannot do the same. Needless to say, there is huge opposition to this legislation from the powerful special interests that profit from the current wasteful health care system we have today. The insurance companies, the drug companies, Wall Street and the Koch brothers are devoting a lot of money to lobbying, campaign contributions, and television ads to defeat this proposal. But they are on the wrong side of history. Guaranteeing health care as a right is important to the American people, not just from a moral and financial perspective. It also happens to be what the majority of the American people want. In the last poll that I saw, 63% of Americans now support moving to a Medicare for all system. The time is long overdue for the United States to join every other industrialized country and guarantee health care to all in a cost-effective manner. And that is what Medicare for all is about. Thank you. Thank you.
with Marisol Rubio, a candidate for the state Senate in District 7. She will be challenging in a primary Steve Glazer, who might as well be a Republican. He's very much a pro-business corporate Democrat. He has had a uh, past stances that include being anti-union. Um, he's worked for Jobs Pack, which is a front lobby group for the Chamber of Commerce. So we'll get into his record a little bit, but we'll also talk about Marisol's platform because it is very much progressive and it is very much for the people by the people. So welcome, Marisol. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm glad to have you. So we initially met at the CADEM at CALDEM up in the Bay Area, and I was uh, interested in speaking with you because it's a high time that Steve Glazer had a good challenger. He needs to go. Uh, your background, though, I think primes you to discuss Medicare for All. Your daughter is a uh, childhood brain cancer survivor who is disabled, so you've seen firsthand how um, dysfunctional our healthcare system is. So are you going to make that a centerpiece of your platform? Absolutely. I uh, wholeheartedly support uh, Medicare for All at a federal level, and I would like to see us in the state of California transition to a single-payer uh, universal health care that would basically provide uh, free health care at the point of service mm-hmm. for anything, uh, including uh, whether you it's prescription glasses, hearing aids, what have you. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is that um, fundamentally, they did a, NIH did a study on the cost save, the savings to taxpayers if California actually switched to single payer. Right. And this was done. Um, it, it turns out that we would actually end up saving thirty seven point four billion dollars annually mm-hmm. by switching to single universal single payer health care, which is money that obviously we could in turn invest into other things, other sectors that are needing are grossly underfunded, such as education. Mm -hmm. And from a personal standpoint, I understand all too well the why we need to make these changes other than the fact that obviously it's smart, smart business. It saves money for especially for small businesses who no longer have to bear that burden um, to pay for their uh, employees health care. But it also saves the state money. But also, additionally, no one should be going bankrupt. Yeah. Because they have to get health care. Yeah. And that's what happened fundam- to my daughter uh, with my daughter when she was in the hospital for almost two years, ended up with a two million dollar uh, uh, wow. expense of which I had to pay come up with over thirty thousand dollars out of pocket. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's outrageous. And it's uh, it is. And this was back in 1998. So you can only imagine worse. what those figures. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you bring up the cost savings in the NIH study, which I think is a really important conversation. It actually um, angered me the other night during the Democratic debate when both Biden and I believe it was Bennett, Michael Bennett, were talking about how much Medicare for all would cost without having any discussion whatsoever about the savings and co-pays, deductibles, premiums, etc. Absolutely the case that Medicare for all is more economically efficient. The only people benefiting from our current system are the healthcare profiteers, whether it's the insurance industry, big pharma, et cetera. So does that make you angry as a Democrat that we have Democrats that are trying to make the case against this? 
it, it's kind of a two prong approach that they're using. Um, one is because the facts are being skewed. Um, they're not um, the initial cost of transition is actually actually absorbed in the savings that it will provide. Right. So we aren't we aren't actually we are we aren't actually incurring any more debt by doing that um and so i think that one of the most the most important functions that we as um, people um as legislators have to do is make sure to begin to educate our public to put disseminate information so that voters are voting with facts not not uh, a pitch that has been given um mm-hmm on a stage just for the sole sake of trying to get votes. Yeah. Well, I think that's ultimately going to end up uh, blowing up in their faces because I don't think anybody's buying that argument anymore. Even uh, the Koch brothers had funded a a study that came out. The Koch brothers. Right. Yeah. They funded a study that came out that said Medicare for all would end up saving us money. So it's really, this is just a fact of the matter. Do you think... Do you think it might be easier to go state by state then as far as implementing some sort of single payer system in the country? It may may be the case that we have to pursue it that way. I would like for us to federally uh, do that because there is we need the support from the federal government and it would make it easier for us to do make that transition. Um, But if we have to, I would love to see California lead the way in that regard. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's an interesting thought because that's how uh, Canada was able able to implement their system. They went territory by territory. Um, what about Rendon? He came out saying he supported Medicare for all, single payer system, but he ended up tabling our state bill, uh, and it went nowhere the last time. What What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Yes, he was pandering to the voters, but in behind closed doors, he was actually um, not mm-hmm. trying to stop the bill. Yeah, it's Ugh. really frustrating. These why well, why do you need uh, Republicans when you have Democrats that do things like this? Exactly. I mean, and I think that I I think that um, more and more people are growing frustrated with the fact that um, you know we're having politi- electing politicians who give a good talk but then mm-hmm. once they get into office they essentially become gatekeepers themselves yeah. and, and then their primary concern now um especially when this is why it's so important to really uh get big money and special interests out of uh our our, our uh, elections is because they become beholden to them and so um their role is no longer in serving the public, but rather in protecting their seat. And right. and, and they just become seat warmers. And we don't need seat warmers. No. People are are literally uh, dying mm-hmm. and and going homeless. And mm-hmm. our wages you know are have been stagnant for decades yeah. relative to the profits that corporations are making. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we talk about that that I just came actually across a Forbes article on this. And I I thought it was really interesting that, you know, a lot of people will talk about, Oh, you know uh, how proud we are that we're going to $15 an hour, but let's face it, that those $15 an hour are long overdue. And, and, and secondly, it's not, it's it's not, it's not enough. Yeah. And especially in California. Yeah. It's, Definitely not enough. Yeah. You couldn't pay um, rent not- in LA off $15 an hour. So the idea that the, we're just catching up to that as a minimum wage is insane. It needs to be like double that. 
Exactly. I, I would say I would at, at minimum propose for entry level jobs. Uh, we should at least be going to $20 an hour. Mm -hmm. I know for healthcare workers like myself, I, I'm also a caregiver, as you may recall. Yeah. Um, we are getting paid. I kid you not. We get paid less than someone working at a fast food restaurant who gets $15 an hour. We get no, I'm not kidding. We get $12.51 with no retirement benefits whatsoever. That's insane. And no, yeah. You have a degree and, and, in neurobiology from UC Berkeley, right? Right. Yeah. And you're telling me yes. you're getting paid $12 an hour? Yeah. Wow. Wow. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. To them, we were as care as caregivers, primary caregivers, we're providing a $470 billion annual economic value. Mm -hmm. And in return, we get $12.51 an hour, of which actually Governor, uh, we're getting right now, we stalled it for two years. Governor Newsom did not want to permanently sign this into action, but it was a bill that we passed for the 7% restoration. Um, to protect us from further getting our wages slashed because they were they, the uh, in-home supported services, the federal government actually was implementing some algorithm that was slashing our wages by 7%. <laughs> As insane. if 12.51 was something to be very proud about to begin with. No, it's terrible. Um, it's outrageous. It's, um, it's, 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 it's modern day slave wages. Yeah. And we have, uh, and, our, and our insurance is, is nothing more than honestly Medi-Cal. Mm -hmm. And we are stuck with like having to go to our only like local service providers. And if you want to go outside of that, you're going to have to go through an extreme appeal process, which is one of the things that a lot of people do not understand. Like when, when, you know, for example, when Biden was talking about uh, the Affordable Care Act and touting how great that was, one of the limitations of the Affordable Care Act is exactly that. Mm -hmm. It is forcing people to have to go to health care healthcare providers in their county. Mm -hmm. No, but you're not wrong. And, and if you don't, you get penalized. I, exactly. had, I had an accident recently where I had a, a need for stitches. And the bill I got from the hospital, and I have like really good insurance, quote unquote, you know, compared to most, it's still shit. My my payment on it was like twenty four hundred dollars. I was like, right. "Are you kidding me? What the hell is yeah. this bill for?" I never right. even wait. Hold up, I never even saw a doctor. You know who stitched right. me up? A nurse. Wow. <laughs> It's like, it's I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. And this is like, I did want to kind of bring it back because there was something I wanted to add when mm -hmm. we were talking about the debate stage and when they were talking about health care. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of myths out there in terms of one of the things that a lot of people are falling into the trap of thinking is that somehow if we go into universal health care, that their quality of care is going to, going to go down. Which or is that ridiculous. There's no, yeah. yeah. It, which is completely false. Yeah, that was um, that was John Delaney that was making that exactly. claim. And I think it it's important to mention that John Delaney's past is as a health insurance financier. That's he's, you know, he's bought and paid for. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which is why actually Bernie pointed that out during the debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and that is, it's true. Um, so the thing is, is that there are a lot of myths in terms of that they're suddenly going to lose their quality of care, not going to be able to continue to see the doctors that they want to see, that they're going to have a long waiting periods to get the services they need rendered, which mm -hmm. is completely false again. Totally Every false, single yeah. 
Canada and 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 um, the UK, which both have single pair, have shorter waiting times than we do, under four months for them, whereas ours oh, is typically yeah. over four months. I mean, look, right now you have an insurance company that could very well deny you access to something that you need. So this idea that if we go to single payer, it'll be worse than that is fucking ridiculous. It's the opposite. Yeah. That's true. Right. And so they're just using essentially fear mongering mm-hmm. to stop these efforts because mm-hmm. there's no reason other than the fact that we are taking the profit out of healthcare, which yeah. should be a public service. We're taking yeah. it out. You know, so. no, and I agree with that. There should have never been profiteering introduced to healthcare. It's immoral. No. It's it's untenable. It's ridiculous. There's not everything in our country has to be for profit. This is what neoliberalism has wrought, and it's very right. unhealthy. It's very detrimental. And it's happening with our schools as well. I yep. do want to talk about that. Actually, I saw my list of questions. Uh, you are also a UC graduate. I just completed a term on my alumni board, actually, for UC. And uh, I'm a little bit worried about where that's been for a while now and where it's continuing to go. Um, as of last year, there is only 8% of the funding for the UC system coming from the state of California. Only 8%. This is supposed to be public university, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and I think part of the problem is that due to our d- direct democracy and propositions, we have we have funneled so many things that used to be on the dis- discretionary side of the budget onto the mandatory side that the UC Cal State budgets are now the lias- highest line items on the discretionary side of the budget. So they're often the first to get axed just because of that. So, right. yeah. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts in this area? What can we do to refinance the UC system? Because I think it's in dire straits. I don't want corporations to keep coming in and providing that funding because ultimately that's going to screw with the purity of the academics. And the UC system needs to remain a crown jewel of the state. Absolutely. And um, it is it is a major, major problem um, um, because they are grabbing wherever they can. I mean, we see it in the terms of the fact that our you saw the tuition almost quadruple between 2002 Mm -hmm. and 2012, which was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. While at the same time, as you saw, the the interest rates on the student loans were going from one point seven five percent to almost eight percent. Right which created a generation of students who are graduating in debt for decades. In America, all of our people, regardless of their income, are entitled to get all of the education they need. That means free public colleges and universities. That means a major expansion in Pell Grants and in work-study programs. But at a time when 45 million Americans are struggling, sometimes in just outrageous ways, with oppressive student debt, our legislation would end that student debt within six months. Uh, I myself am one of uh, these 45 million. We are going to make sure that we are freeing them from that shackle so that they can have the kind of prosperity that should be guaranteed by the educations that they've received. You don't have to worry about whether you can buy a house or start a family or invest in a car. You don't have to worry about uh, giving up a home that you might have, not being able to pay rent. 
We pay for it in a very simple way. We put a tax, a small tax, a fraction of 1% on Wall Street speculation. This is not a radical idea. If we could bail out Wall Street, you know what? We're going to help the working class and the middle class of this country. Our studies show that if we were to cancel debt for these 45 million people, our economy would see a boost of $1 trillion over 10 years. Because we haven't raised the minimum wage, um, because people's real wages have decreased, and because the cost of college that's covered by the government has decreased, we are putting people in these impossible situations where they're making trade-offs that aren't good for them for the future and aren't good for the country. We are trying to literally rebuild the middle class. If we lift that burden, think about what people will do. Instead of having to pay $1,000 a month in student debt, you can go out and maybe start that business that you dreamed of starting. Maybe you can start having the children that you wanted to have or buy the house that you wanted to have. If we don't address these basic things that people deserve, these basic things that are a right, healthcare, education, these are the things that allow us to be secure as a country. We are setting ourselves up for failure by not being bold in the way that we approach solutions in order for us to really tackle this issue of inequality and poverty and stimulating the um, economy for the middle class, we have to be bold in, in our approaches and make sure that we're um, making the full investment in order um, for people to fully benefit. It is not radical for us to want to make sure that everybody has prosperity guaranteed for them. All that we are saying here today is maybe it is time to stand up for the working class of this country and not just the 1%. Let's give them a break. Let's stand with the working families of this country and create an economy that works for them. And so um, what I, I, I personally believe that our higher education should be accessible to all. Mm -hmm. That is not something that I think Again, we need to take the profit out of that. We need to make sure that if, like what I mentioned from the outset, if we actually open ourselves up to the to transitioning to universal health care, we oh, we reined in Prop 13 and 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 um and address the split role issue and make sure to bring in funds through that avenue. Today's briefing on the schools and communities first initiative campaign. We're also known and using the term Prop 13 reform, and until recently, we were the Make It Fair campaign. So um, I'm Helen Hutchison. I'm the president of the League of Women Voters of California. Joining me today is our executive director, Melissa Breach. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, and I'm going to talk a really quick refresher about Prop 13, which is why we're here. Um, Prop 13 was passed 40 years ago in 1978, um, and it limits property tax and, and then and also the local ability to levy new property taxes. Um, reassessment on a property occurs only when the property is sold or transferred, essentially if the ownership changes. Um, and as a, as a point of information about this, residential property in California transfers on average about every 10 years. Commercial property, which includes industrial, transfers far less frequently. Um, and then in addition to that, um, 
the larger companies have been using legal strategies and loopholes to, to carefully avoid reassessments. So we have some very large corporate, industrial, commercial, whatever you want to say, properties that um, have avoided reassessment for essentially the whole 40 years. Um, so the, the, uh, what the result of this is we, we have this huge differential in the state. Prior to the passage of Prop 13, it was kind of, there was a relative balance. About 50% of the total property tax paid in the state was paid by residential property, and the other 50% or approximately was pay, pay, paid by commercial property. Now, because of this, the, the differential in, in how frequently things get reassessed, residential properties are paying almost three quarters of the property taxes in California. Um, and that includes um, houses, apartments, and whether they're owned or rented. Um, so what does our um, initiative do? The, the, the Schools and Communities First initiative. The first thing is that commercial property, which includes industrial, as I said, would be reassessed every three years at fair market value. The Prop 13 protections stay for the residential and agricultural property. Prop 13 was sold in, in, in its original form as a, as a protection for homeowners, and we are keeping those protections in place. Um, that there are two tax breaks for small businesses. Small businesses that own their own property would not get reassessed under this um, under this initiative. And in addition, they have a they get a break on um, personal property taxes, which are actually pretty onerous for um, particularly for small businesses. Um, the estimate is that we would bring in ten billion dollars a year. For and that money would go to schools and local services. It's the same way that the same use that property tax is put to now. So the money would be allocated just as this is an increase in property tax, and it would go the same allocation as property taxes do now. Um, it goes to schools that, and cities, counties, and special districts. The one difference is that instead of just going to the school districts that are in the county in which the, the property tax is, is, is collected, the money would be allocated using the state formula for equity between all the districts in California. Um, there would be more uh, funds available for us to put into the uh, protected funds that would go into our UC systems. And we could actually provide, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, free college education for the, those of, for our most vulnerable. At minimum, I would like free college education, but at minimum, we we must begin by tapping into those who are are, are needing our assistance. The ones who, 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 for whom college education would not be a, an option. Mm -hmm. um, we shouldn't have college students sleeping in their cars. Oh my God, um, I know, right? Or we have, we now actually have a food bank at UC Irvine, believe it or not. It, it, it's deplorable. I mean, it this is, is deplorable. A, I mean, this is the fifth largest economy, yeah. California. And what we're seeing on the other side, I mean, honestly, for the majority in California is really, really appalling. And it says a lot about where we are at, where our policies have taken us, our current policies. And I actually saw in the U.S. News 
a report recently that in terms of opportunity, California ranks 49th out of our 50 states. Yeah, I believe it. Um, I believe it. So I want to I want to loop back around for a second. You brought up an interesting point that's something uh, that Gail McLaughlin uh, believes, and that's Prop 13 reform. So right. right. So currently, we have a lot of commercial uh, properties owned by corporations such as Chevron and Richmond would be a great example, where they're literally paying absolutely no money in property tax because Prop 13 didn't just freeze residential property taxes for homeowners, it also froze corporate-owned property. So I think um, the crux of of her plan would be to remove that barrier where where the corporations are now going to start paying property taxes, and that could be used to fund the university, public, uh, or even the entire school system, really. Exactly, exactly. It does work both, it would apply both to all education, K through 12 and higher education, but also public services. Hmm. So if we talk about um, our firefighters or police, what have you, you know, in certain cities, uh, their manning power, for example, for firefighters, like in certain cities, like up north in my district, are grossly... uh, 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 low in number that they they're understaffed so mm. um and so and these are our public service providers who are putting their lives on the line every day running into a fire you know yeah. uh, so yeah. i mean do you think the reality- part of that is related to the fact that they were also using prison labor to fight fires which is don't even get me started on the involuntary <laughs> servitude but but yeah they were relying on that heavily for so many years that, which also, honestly, I have to tell you, what really bothers me. Not only is this involuntary servitude, it's also taking away uh, well-paid jobs for people looking for employment. Exactly. It's like a two-pronged problem. But does is that yes. contributing to the problem in your area? Um, I haven't specifically looked into that, so I can't okay. confirm that, but... I will look into that. Um, it, it would be interesting to find out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I just, um, I spoke with the president of the Contra Costa firefighters and this is something that he does have a, a express concern over um, the manning power being understaffed and up um, in the cities up North by like Antioch and such. So, um, and the, the, so anyway, so the split role is actually very important. It is an important source of funding that could provide for all of these things. When we talk, I think it's somewhere in the, don't hold me to this number, but it's somewhere, I believe, $1.4 billion of revenue that could be brought out, extrapolated. Sure. And this, and the reality is, is that these corporations, what this would do is essentially update the tax rate for them so yes. that they're paying their fair, sh- corporations are paying their fair share, mm-hmm. just like homeowners when they switch ownership. Yes. And, um, and <laughs> well, so. No, wait, hang on, Marisol. That's a really good point because these corporations haven't exchanged, the property hasn't exchanged hands in the way that residential houses have. So like when I bought my house, the um, gal that owned the house before me was paying less than $400 in property taxes. I now pay six over 6000 So every time the property switches hands, it, right. re, it readjusts. But these corporations right. have never sold their property. Absolutely. And the thing is that, frankly, um, they not only do they need to pay their fair share, but on a fundamental principle, they are benefiting from their community. 
And, you know, they need to reinvest in that community. They have a responsibility in that. And I think this is more and more, all these issues that we're talking about is not, not only are we talking about addressing the issue about the fact that there are certain public services that are being privatized and shouldn't be privatized, but we're also talking about the fact that corporations, the reason capitalism hasn't been working is because corporations more and more, especially since the 1980s, uh, this is goes back to the article I was reading from Forbes magazine again, is that um, it does, they're not reinvesting in their employees anymore. Right, right. It became more a bottom line, mm-hmm. a profit, a return on investment type of approach for their investors. Too bad we didn't have a philosopher that predicted that. <laughs> Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, so, so, so this is really what's at the heart of the problem. I mean, we, we as a government, uh, we have not held accountable, um, uh, whether we're talking about housing developers, we haven't held accountable uh, corporations and their, and their responsibilities to their employees. This is what we're supposed to do mm-hmm. as, as state legislators or federal legislators. We're supposed to do that. That's our job, to make sure that there's accountability, top down, you know, and there is, we haven't been doing that. And, you know, obviously we understand why this is happening and has and like we said from the beginning it has to do with uh, camp campaign financing and the way we run it in this country is really really set you know uh creating a situation where you know corporations and uh, special interests are getting far more representation than the everyday voter i think they're getting all the representation at this point yeah <laughs> i would I, I would have to agree with that one at this structure. absolutely Absolutely. Uh, I think something that relates to the problem with uh, not enough firefighters is also the increase of fire season in the state due to global uh, warming climate change. So do you support ending fracking in the state? And what other green measures do you include on your platform? On the environmental front, I mean, I, I am as a scientist by training, this is extremely important to me. And I have a daughter also like, um, who will uh, pay the consequences of our failure to act right now with the uh, urgency that is 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 merited right now for us to, to stop the climate crisis. Um, so yes, I do ban fracking, but I'm also sensitive to our union workers who will be affected by that. And I propose that we do offer those who are affected by that these transitions, um, that we do offer them uh, a uh, job training, free paid job training, where they will be compensated their work hours. In other words, they do not get dis- their salaries do not get disrupted. We provide training for them, and for those employees who are older and perhaps it may be more difficult for them to go back to school, we provide comparable jobs for them to transition into these uh, green jobs and fields so that they can can continue to work mm-hmm. and 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 be, you know, benefit, uh, receive their benefits and salaries without interruption. I think it's just the reality that we have to embrace that we have to transition to green jobs. Yeah. And we have to help, you know, without and we can do that without hurting our, our workers. Yeah. But absolutely, uh, fracking is, is, is a threat to our water um, and our air. And we just cannot allow that. Yeah. Um, and even I, I've um, 
heard discussion that apparently even the current presidential administration is considering drilling in our own backyard in Mount Diablo. <laughs> That's not going to happen under my watch. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, you know? it's crazy because, um, so I'm assuming you, you support the Green New Deal attached to jobs guarantee. I absolutely as um, I'm also the issues committee co-chair at the central committee in Contra Costa. Mm. And we actually had a resolution brought in by the uh, chair of our environmental caucus. Mm -hmm. And we passed it unanimously and it passed through our membership as well. And um, because we are wholeheartedly acknowledging that we are facing a climate crisis at this juncture and that we need to do something proactive to not only reinvest uh reinvest in renewable energy but also reinvest in some form of uh whatever carbon capture or measures that we can take uh implement as well so that we can get to as net zero emissions Mm -hmm. as soon as possible yeah Um, it's it's definitely a crisis you're right it is. It is. And I, I always find this a little bit interesting where people say, you know, oh, we can do it in 2050. No. And I'm like, I don't think <laughs> you like, understand. Yeah. 2050. We'll be dead. <laughs> We're done by 2050. We're done. I mean, ser- I don't yeah. understand why people are still trying to claim that climate change is a hoax. It's just mind numbing to me. Like, All how much data- more evidence do you need? I, I, I don't know. And, and and I I can't even fathom. But if you look at the data, we're exponentially on a, an upward trend. Yeah. And um. Yeah, they keep having to revise the models because it's happening as as things progress. It's um, exponentially speeding up the process. Exactly. Exactly. And so the the reality is, um, we need to do something, and we need people who have the courage to up and to push back and to fight for the things that are honestly we are fighting for humanity right now we are and i don't you know i at this point i tell people i'm like you know yes we're going to continue to have deniers but we have to work above and beyond the deniers because at this point it is about saving our planet and 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 the future for our kids indeed i mean look it's the gravest problem we have in my opinion none of these other issues matter if we don't fix this it's really that exactly. simple. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. They're all overshadowed. I mean, what what, what economy yeah. do we have to fight for if we don't have a world to live in? <laughs> exactly. Or if it's like so boiling hot, you can't, you know, and, and part of the other problem is a lot of the things we use to correct the issue of like rising temperatures in some areas is using HVAC or air conditioning, which further contributes to <laughs> the speed up of climate. You know what I'm saying? It's it's um, we got to come up with new technologies and there's absolutely no reason why we can't. There's no reason why we can't go 100 percent solar in the state. It's just right. the, it's just the will we're missing. Right. I mean, we do. There are a number of of of, of uh, proposed ideas out there and, mm-hmm. and I mean, endless ideas. It's not like we have a shortage of ideas. We have right. endless ideas. So. You know, when we talk about the economy, um, about creating jobs and such, we need to be tapping into that through our green technology and looking at green jobs and creating jobs for the 21st century. I mean, we're long overdue. The 21st century happened now 20 years ago. We need to make that transition, you know? And so, right. And so, and we could do, it's like, we're, we're doing good, not only for ourselves as a society, but doing good for our environment. I mean, it's a win-win situation for everyone involved. Yeah, for the whole planet. 
I want to talk a little bit about disability rights because I think this is also an area that you can speak directly to. Your daughter, um, due to her illness, is disabled. So do you think the system is in need of reform? Absolutely. There are many, many, many uh, things that need to be worked on on this front, not only for the, uh, the person who's receiving care, but also for the care provider. Um, what is happening is that um, in terms of my daughter, um, as you know, um, she, uh, due to understaffing and um, underfunding and therefore understaffing in the educational system, they could never provide her the services she needed, whether it was rehabilitative in nature or educational in nature, which way they were supposed to provide to her by law under the IDEA. Mm -hmm. And um, the only way to fight these, um, what I call, unfortunately, gatekeepers in the school districts um, is literally you would have to arm yourself with a lawyer, an educational advocate, advocate lawyer who would come and advocate on behalf of your children. Um, but let's think about how many people can actually afford that. Yeah. Um, so, um, as you know, I had to go back to school, essentially, and educate myself. And, and take classes, I, I studied neurobiology, but I also took classes in education, psychology, all kinds of courses to really empower myself and essentially become her educator, the one they wouldn't provide her, which they were supposed to provide for her by law. And had I not done those, taken, taken those measures, I don't know where my daughter would be today, but fortunately today, thanks to the, spending those three to four hours a night, five to six days a week, Today, every neuropsychological evaluation she's had to date, which are four, have shown that despite her full-scale IQ being at a borderline level, mm -hmm. she is academically functioning well above that. Wow. And she is attending, yeah, she's attending a junior college and studying, um, um, majoring in psychology. And she just got an A in her last class. Good job. <laughs> That's amazing. I love hearing right. that. And so what this is attesting to is the fact that Imagine how many more children like my daughter are out there and not getting those services. Mm -hmm. That is one of the things I'm very passionate about, about making sure that we capture our young children early in life um, and making sure we stop the school to prison pipeline type of uh, 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 circumstances and make sure that we don't lose our kids yeah. by the time they're in middle school. You know, make sure that those kids who learn differently, the ones who have uh, our high function autistic children or have ADD or ADHD, I can't fathom why, why to this day, we still do not use neuroscience to inform our ped pedagogical models and teach to these kids the way they learn, mm -hmm. rather than trying to force them into a metric system that clearly doesn't work for them. Right. Doesn't make sense to me. Right. And then... Um, do you think there's a relationship then to these kids not having that happen as far as the education system and then going on to end up in situations where they're committing crime because they're not getting the education they need? Is that what you meant by the school to prison pipeline? Yes. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Can you, will absolutely. you talk about that a little bit? Because that's an interesting point that rarely gets brought up. Right. Well, I think that the reason is, is because when you are constantly being put in a situation where you know that your chances of winning, which is succeeding, mm -hmm. uh, are next to none, you're essentially dehumanizing the person and taking away their will 
um, and their um, any hope they may a child may have to to look forward to a future that a thriving future. Um, and so, what essentially happens with these kids is they give up. Mm-hmm. They give up and they check out. And when they check out, they have to channel those negative emotions somehow. Right. And and we know where that goes. Mm-hmm. You know, no, that's and a fair point. Yeah, I mean, we know where it goes, and unfortunately, it, it's uh, you know uh, we need to be understand that our 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 minds, our brains don't operate all the same way. We need to acknowledge that. That's not an opinion. That's a scientific fact. Right. And so, under acknowledging that, we need to create schools, a school system, an environment that embraces all kinds of students that learn in all different types of ways. Mm-hmm. And imagine what the kind of environment we could create when we when we uh, create classrooms that, for example, are more applied in nature for kids who do have these sort of uh, more attention deficit, uh, short-term attention spans, right? Mm-hmm. Where they can thrive and, uh, and work more under an applied manner and see that it's not just them. There's a whole lot of other kids who learn differently. And now they realize that, you know what? I'm not an odd man out. I'm just one of many who mm-hmm. learn this way. It just happens to be different. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's defective. It's just different. Yeah. No, that's fair. Um, let's shift gears for a second and talk about Steve Glazer, who currently holds uh, the seat that you're running for in District 7. Um, Steve Glazer has a very seated past, in my opinion. Um, this is a guy who, uh, he's a very, he's had very anti-union stances in the past. I want to talk about his union stances for a second. As the vice mayor of Orinda, uh, he backed a measure that sought to ban transit workers from striking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's just continued down that chain of belief all the way through his political career. So is it your intention to make union rights uh, a plank in your campaign? Well, see, the problem is, is that um, unfortunately, um, my opponent has uh, uh, labeled unions essentially akin to a mafia, which is really (laughs) offensive. And secondly, he doesn't understand his role. as uh, him being in a position of leadership, when I understand the concerns that he's he was expressing in terms of the workers needing get you know the, the problems that are being caused by them striking, but what he really should have done is urged uh, both the workers and Bart to come to the table and negotiate something as soon as possible, mm-hmm. rather than asking them to fold and mm-hmm. to give up their rights. That's right. You don't, you know, his job is to be a mediator and to get them to to, to resolve this as quickly as possible. And that is not what he did. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that it was appropriate at all whatsoever. And absolutely, we, you know, unions serve a very important function to give a collective voice to everyday blue collar workers. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, it's blue collar workers, not strictly, but usually. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, they wouldn't get representation. Right. Let's be honest, they don't. And so um, right now, for example, uh, for caregivers, I can see for my union, SEIU 2015, um, we have, uh, we're fighting for uh, 
to make sure that, like, I remember I mentioned to you about the restoration, but there was also, um, they were trying to, uh, there was a CMS rule that was put out there. It's actually the uh, Centers for for Medicare and Mm -hmm. Medicaid Services rule that was put out there to essentially uh, not allow the union to deduct the union dues from their paper checks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just basically a, a back-end way of trying to weaken the union right. from having representation and power. And because SEIU 2015 is one of our strongest unions in the state. Right. And um, so without that, I mean, we barely are, are able to get what we need as it is. And without our union, we are going to be continuing not only to live in the shadows, but really, I mean, we're in dire straits. Uh, I was just doing some research, actually, on the effects of caregivers, which um, I didn't quite get to last time earlier. Um, But caregivers, the rate of anxiety and depression is between 23 to 29%. Yikes. yeah, Yeah. And of those suffering with anxiety... They have about uh, 31% suicidal ideation and about a 4.1% suicide attempt. This is like people are dying. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And when I say people are dying, I'm not just saying it because it's a figment of my imagination. It's an exaggeration. It's actually even studies done as early back in 2005 by nature um they did a study on what was happening even at a cellular level for primary caregivers and they found that their cells were aging at six times the rate of even single mom you're kidding me what's the reason for that stress stress it's enormous chronic stress Mm -hmm. so what it's doing is it's creating these oxidative effects Right. And essentially causing their cells to turn over at a higher rate. Okay. It's not getting too technical, but the telomerase at the end, that is our protective part of our DNA mm-hmm. that keeps it from developing um, abnormalities is wearing away faster. So we are literally, literally dying and nobody cares. Nobody cares. And for twelve fifty one an hour. <laughs> I was just going to bring that up. Let me um, backtrack for a second and talk about SEIU because I have a love-hate relationship with your union. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a union member, so I support (laughs) the work unions do. But it seems time and time again, SEIU has failed their members in a myriad of ways. Uh, In the state, they have chosen to back establishment anti-Medicare for all candidates in primaries where there has been a more progressive candidate running. And I understand that they probably think that their union plan is uh, better than most other plans available and that that's maybe a bargaining chip for uh, um, luring members in. But at some point, they need to have to come to the fact that this this uh, their their plan isn't such a gold standard anymore. Those gold standard plans just simply don't exist. The union plans are shit now too. I know mine is, mm-hmm. so I'm a little bit bothered by that. And 
And I was um, also a little bit bothered by the fact on the national level that they came out and endorsed Hillary Clinton during the primary when she was saying 13 an hour is just peachy keen instead of endorsing the guy saying, no, we need 15 an hour, fight for 15. I will say that in speaking with individual members, Mm-hmm. They have expressed a great deal of support for more progressive candidates and specifically Bernie. Right. And I actually have heard that. Yeah. Uh, no, I have too. I'm saying it's your leadership. It's not the members. Right. There seems and to be that, a, I, a right. disconnect. Right, right. And I think that um, I can't explain the past and their rationale for that because Mm-hmm. I haven't, you know, I haven't quite gotten to those discussions with them. Okay. Um, but um, as far as what I I know, um, that today they are wholeheartedly, real, truly fighting for these things that I mentioned earlier, right. okay. and and the seven percent restoration, and acknowledging that our governor needs to step up and implement more, be more progressive on these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. and That's good. I know they are working for retirement benefits to, for the Cal savers. For example, they're trying to get some form of retirement benefits for our workers. Um, so unfortunately, uh, from a firsthand point of view, I, I, I cannot, ex- uh, uh, explain that because, um, that's okay. something I would have to have a discussion with them, specifically <laughs> the rationale behind that. Yeah, that's but fair. And it might've been a different set of leaders than you have now. For example, I know we right. have here in my district 34, right. they, they endorsed the candidate that wasn't supporting Medicare for all in the last primary and it infuriated right. me. Just keep your finger off the scale. So um, I think I, I did, like I said, from the workers' point of view, I, I did sense that there was um, in talking with my uh, fellow uh, members, yeah. they have shown um, a lot of support for more progressive. Oh, absolutely. Values. Yeah. Every, in fact, when I was at Cal, Kdem, when I was at Caldem, every SEIU member I spoke with was very much in support of Bernie and his policies. So it just seems like a a strange disconnect and it happens look i've had poor union Mm -hmm. uh leadership in my union that i've gotten Mm -hmm. very angry with so i just think it's really important that as union members we pay attention to the politics inside of our unions because just like with the politics in the country there is going to be a dichotomy between the more believe it or not it's a union but they do have more corporate friendly folks that are in there i mean we even had a republican on our board at one point believe it or not right <laughs> so. right it will be interesting <laughs> to see i think it'll be interesting to see how our some of our unions do move mm-hmm. um in this upcoming presidential election yeah um and um and as well as the state level we'll see you know yeah. hopefully <laughs> hopefully yeah so we'll see but i just was very been very curious about that so let's get yeah. back to steve glazer because i'm not done railing on him <laughs> so we could spend a lot of time a long time here for sure <laughs> oh right exactly um so in 2012 uh glazer worked as a consultant for a pack called jobs pack which is basically a lobby front group for the chamber of commerce uh, their three biggest donor classes is oil companies, and at that time was tobacco um, and also the insurance industry. So in that record of Steve's hasn't abated, he has continued to take money from all of these sources. 
What is your stance on money in politics and how does your platform differentiate differentiate from his in this area? Well, for one, I refuse to take any money from insurance companies, from uh, fossil fuels, or honestly, any corporation, um, because, I again, I wouldn't be running if I just wanted to continue the politics as usual. Mm-hmm. I want to fundamentally do something different, and I do not want to be beholden to any of those, any of that money or any of the people who are providing that money. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of uh, fundraising, I am doing everything possible to make sure that we do, or organize and, do, and, and uh, form a true grassroots movement so, and so that I, my uh, campaign, we can continue to run on a people-powered platform. Um, and um, I, all I can say is I would not be running if all I was going to do is continue to serve the very same people who are actually hurting us. Yeah. I am running because I want to change politics as usual. And reality is, is I'm not a politician. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> a plus. A yeah, I'm not a politician. I'm just a really, really frustrated mother mm-hmm. who had to, you know, spend 23 years of her life doing all the work doing for for my daughter on the healthcare and educational front that honestly I should have been able to rely on and I couldn't. Right. You know, and and at the same time having to sacrifice not only my 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 well-being financially, but my well-being physically and um, health-wise, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. my everything, you know, and I know that I'm not the only one. I know that. And that is, what, and, and I had this distinct opportunity because luckily I was engaged enough politically at an activist level to know enough people to actually consider running for office. And I, and, and it would have been so much easier just to stay home and not do anything. But then I, couldn't do that because I felt compelled that if I don't do something now, when will we actually have another opportunity to have somebody who actually is coming from the community who actually has lived experience firsthand in all these areas. When we talk about housing going up, my rent just went up $600 a month in a 15 month period. Are you kidding me? You know, no, we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, yeah, it's completely okay nowadays. Well, yeah, um, so- we, we overturned our rent control law in the state. Um, we'll talk about that in a second, but I want to ask you also about uh, one of the things Steve Glazer did that I think is just horrifying to me. Um, well, you know, maybe he didn't do it firsthand. We'll never know, but he could have. In 2015, he was running against Susan Bonilla. And he was the beneficiary of a Koch Brothers funded ad that was put out by a group called uh, Independent Women's Voice, but it was entirely funded by Koch Brothers money. Which California politician is fiscally irresponsible? In 2012, Assemblymember Susan Bonilla spent more than $400,000 in donor money, despite running unopposed. Bonilla also accepted more than $44,000 in gifts from special interests, including an $11,000 trip to Italy, funded by the oil and energy industry, a $6,500 trip to Taiwan, and a $2,400 trip to Maui, where she was wined and dined by lobbyists. Is this the behavior you want from your state senator? Think about it, and please vote on May 19th. 
So they ran ads against Susan Bonilla and her stance on health care. And it was the usual claims of fear-mongering government takeover of our healthcare sort of attack mm-hmm. ads. So mm-hmm. I would imagine that you running on a platform that includes Medicare for all and being a neurobiologist, that you're going to be um, at some point the recipient of a similar attack and they will spend the money to keep you out of office. Are you prepared to fight that? Absolutely. I mean, this is where we have to fight back equally hard, if not harder, to make sure that people, our voters are getting factual information. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is, is that all the way dating back to when we were trying to reform healthcare back in the early 90s, remember 1992, the uh, kitchen table yeah. <laughs> commercial? Yeah, right. Table I commercial. mean, this is what they do. This is the gold standard of what they do to stop every yeah. progressive bill that we have. So what we need to do from early on, from the outset, is make sure that we take a, a, an early stand, an early proactive measure to e- educate the voters. Mm-hmm. We have to disseminate the information. And that is why it's so important to have a really strong, healthy grassroots effort from the outset, because it is those, the people, the people who are driving Mm-hmm. The vote, the vote, you know, are the people who are canvassing, going door to door and right. talking with the voters and educating them about these issues. Because unfortunately, if we rely on um, mailers strictly or or on what we see on television, it's filtered right. and um, and skewed, to say the least. Right. Um so we need to make sure to to put out a, a strong initiative on that front and make sure to nip in the bud early on proactively those potential type of attacks. Yeah, because- they're going to come. But it's so you're going with the they have money, we have people, which I think is um, I think that's more powerful in a sense, because when you have small individual donors that are willing to canvas for you you already have a buy-in and getting out the vote, right? These are folks that are actively involved in your campaign and they're going to be there for you on voting day. So that's a fairly good strategy. So let's go back and talk about um, housing crisis and homelessness in the state of California, because it's pretty bad. We have, this is a serious crisis uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, one of the one of the issues we've had is the Costa Hawkins and Prop mm-hmm. 10 that was on our last ballot didn't um, didn't make it through. But you had a tremendous amount of Wall Street money working to defeat that because a lot of the a lot of the uh, large apartment complexes, et cetera, are owned by these uh, real estate investment trusts, et cetera. So there's big money involved. Um so Costa Hawkins basically has hamstrapped every local municipality. They they can't they can't pass rent control laws. So uh, you're telling me you've had your rent raised six hundred dollars in fifteen months, and that's fucking outrageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we, we have. Yeah. I don't know if you have it in your area. I'd be curious to know. We have a, a areas where there's just high vacancy because the investment the people that are investing in the property don't really care if they rent them out. So they sit vacant. So one idea is to float a vacancy tax. Is this something that you have considered and do you think it would be effective in uh, your district? Right. So um, under Casa Hawkins, basically it was, um, 
it was prohibiting uh, uh, vacancy control and allowed basically the uh, management companies to to basically raise the rent on the next person who would move in, right? So basically the nuts and bolts of it is that it sort of, they made the case that if we grandfathered in a certain percentage of the property, existing right. rental units right. into the current laws, there would be enough there and that it would also spur development because it would allow developers to come in and build um, new buildings, et cetera, et cetera. That was the argument that they made. But what happened, uh, right. unintended consequences, I guess you say, but I actually believe these were intended consequences. Right. In the areas where you don't have strong building ordinances, right. building codes, uh, a lot of these developers basically came in and bought the older buildings tore them mm -hmm. down and rebuilt them and voila costa hawkins they could charge whatever they want because they were no longer grandfathered in right and right. we've seen this happening in many places one of the few areas we still have a large uh portion of our rent control in la for example is santa monica and brentwood and the reason is is because they have much tighter building ordinances there so they can't these guys can't go in there and tear down these old apartment buildings but downtown LA, are you kidding me? It's outrageous what they've done to downtown LA. I so, mean, it is it, go it ahead. is a form of it is a form of honestly gentrifying, gentrifying the entire neighborhood. Oh yeah. Uh, and and the but in terms of where the city where I live, we do not have any kind of protections in terms of when it comes to that. And and frankly, uh, I think a, where I live, a lot of the development is on new land. It's a because yeah, San so, Ramon in itself is a fairly young San city. Ramon is, yeah, that's true. So there right. was never any older rent control buildings to begin with, probably. Not really. We yeah. we don't really have. A, we're actually one of the areas that are growing, mm -hmm. uh, expanding, mm -hmm. and so we're actually um, we're not personally dealing with a lot of those types of issues. Right. Uh, but. Um, but what I do think is kind of concerning in terms of like uh, the Costa Hawkins issue is that, you know, basically we're only secure, we're providing, committing like people who are low income renters to uh, potentially unsafe rental units, you know, uh, that are not being maintained, you know. Um, and um, I just think that. Uh, this is just another modern day way of redlining, but for renters, um, mm -hmm. basically where we're putting renters in the worst conditions that are low income in the worst conditions and locations that we can find. <laughs> Including sleeping in their cars after up to a certain point. We have employed right. people sleeping in their cars. This is an actual thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 it, and, and even today, like to afford to rent, I, I know people who are uh, professionals who honestly, it's like two couples roommating in a two bedroom apartment. Wow. That's for adults. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> for income. I mean, this just goes to show you like literally, we, this is a problem that goes back to what we were talking about, remember from the outset about our wages mm -hmm. and the fact that we, our wages have not moved in parallel with, with, 
with the profit that that corporations have been making, we are not reaping equally those benefits no. over time. That's correct. And so um, as much as like the housing issue is really a multifaceted issue. It, it's, it's so many things in one because there is a socioeconomic component. And when I and as in terms of like our wages, right, being commensurate yeah. to the cost of living in California and elsewhere throughout the country, for that matter, um, talking about um, making sure that we are protecting renters against rent gouging mm-hmm. um, and making sure that, um, you know, um, that that when renters do want to protest. And that they do want to take action because they are being unfairly having their their rent increased um, because of rent gouging, that they can do so without fearing that they're going to get evicted because of it. There's a bill, AB 1482, that just barely passed the assembly. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it includes just cause and controlling its anti-rent gouging. Mm. So hopefully... Walk us through that a little bit. Um, I just found out about this today. So oh, okay. <laughs> then don't. <laughs> I will do my best, but I felt it was my obligation to make sure to let everybody know yeah. so that we can begin to call our state senators and make sure that they push for this because it barely made it through the assembly. Right. It was actually introduced by an assembly member um, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's, it's extremely important. I mean... Um, yeah, there's well, a lot of factors the point, that are I mean, if, if, your, if your rent goes up $600 in 15 months, that's $600 less of expendable income that you have, because I guarantee right. your pay hasn't increased in the last 15 no. months, right? No, not so, by $600 a month. That definitely yeah. has not happened ever. So eventually, <laughs> this is what kind of blows my mind. This is why it's late stage capitalism. Eventually, right. Even the one percent is going to be harmed by this because if they keep extracting wealth from the working class, meaning right. we're going to raise right. your rent, we're not going to raise raise your wages. You have less expendable income, but we still want you to buy our widgets. Well, now you don't have the money to buy their widgets with, so eventually that harms them as well. It's sort of a self destructive cycle that we're in, right? Right. But they're and, so profit driven, they're so greedy that they can't stop themselves. Yeah, I mean, and it's almost like they're sort of taking everything they can until they end it all. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean they end it all. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly where it's going. It's it a is, dead end. And they it's know the capitalist that. apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. You know, I I, I it, it's just it's just uh we've lost our way i mean we don't have we lost our way decades ago unfortunately and um a lot of us weren't paying attention early enough you know um and but it's not we can still do something i don't want to be discourage people and say we're in this fatalist situation we can't do anything we absolutely can do something best thing that you can do is vote in primaries we have such a low turnout right now in our primaries and it's been very destructive because this is where we lose all of the for the people by the people progressive candidates that aren't people need to start voting in primaries Right. And a lot of them actually, the voters don't understand the way our process works. 
They don't understand that they think that it only matters in the general, but no. Yeah, no, it no. matters more in the primary, in my opinion, especially if you're somebody that's just married to a party line and votes for your party. That's why this is so important. And it's also why I'm very against the auto endorsement system in the California Democratic Party. I don't think sitting candidates should automatically be endorsed. I think that's a mistake. Well, there's definitely a, a group of, 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 of party members within who also are, are disagree with that system, in, including yeah. myself. I mean, yeah. I think that if there's You're a delegate, someone, right? Yes, okay. I'm an at-large delegate. Okay. And so, but there are definitely a lot of people within the party who are not happy with that and um, do feel that we need to um, re- reassess every mm-hmm. person at every every time they run for re-election independent of whether they're an incumbent or not. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, certainly that is the case for my opponent right now. I know they're definitely uh, doing a lot of reassessment with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we need to do that across the board. Absolutely. Yeah, I oh, I absolutely agree. So what other parts of your platform that you are excited about we haven't discussed? Well, I, th- ooh, I think we touched the major issues. I think okay. in terms of social justice, uh, mm, criminal okay. justice reform, um, uh, which is the only other, I think, component we haven't really touched on too much, um, I would have to say that one of the things that we really have to, uh, uh, we have to address is uh, education and psychological service, improved and in- increased psycho access to psychological services mm-hmm. for our police officers mm-hmm. and for our firefighters. Because I was talking to, as I mentioned, I was talking to the president of the uh, Contra Costa Firefighters, and he, one of the things he mentioned is that their suicide rates are going up. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reality is, is that what these, what our, per, our service providers are seeing on a daily basis is very traumatic. And they're seeing it on a daily basis. And when I try to tell people, I'm like, we need to understand that sometimes, I mean, like these things pile up inside of a person. And if we're not providing the support that they need, and then we see what's happening when we see um, um, the case of uh, recently with the young man who was um, uh, strangled. Anyway, but yeah, this young man kept saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And he kept going and going. And people are one belongs in jail. Right. And but at the same time, we could have prevented that with having proactive psychological services that would have reassessed this police officer. Yeah, he would be a police officer to begin with. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. Right. And so we have to be more proactive about that and make sure that they're getting annual assessments yeah. to make sure that they are competent to serve. I 100 percent agree with you there. We have a lot of police officers that are not competent. If you are a racist, white nationalist, if you have any sort of uh, anger issues, anger management issues, if you there's a list of uh, psychological reasons that you would not be fit to serve as a police officer. We're, you're right. We're not right. doing anything to weed them out at this point. No. And we need to do that. And and actually part of those uh, my platform is I actually want to right from the outset offer free college education for people who want to go into fields such as healthcare, mm-hmm. social services and education, because those are the three areas we are severely, severely anemic. And we need people to go into those fields. We have a shortage. We have a shortage. And we need yeah. it now. 
You're right. right. We have a shortage because the college education costs more than what they can get on the back end and pay. That makes exactly. sense. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, what good does it do you? They tell you, oh, you know, well, if you will go work in a high need school district, for example, mm-hmm. and your starting salary is forty five thousand dollars. How appealing right. is that when right. you can go work to at another adjacent district and start at twenty thousand dollars more per year? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's valid. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a problem there. We, we're almost problem. reversing things, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, the reality is if anybody should be getting paid more, it should be the people who are serving these high need school districts. Oh, absolutely. They're obviously much more stressful environments. Yep. So, so we want, yeah. Yeah. And we're doing it backwards. So we do have to deal with, um, with um, how that, that those federal and state funds are being managed. And yeah. that actually goes back to the, it's the LCC, the LCFF, that handles how we distribute our funds in our uh, school districts. Mm -hmm. So we have to make sure to address that as well. But in terms of the dealing with a prison pipeline, I mean, I'm sorry, in terms of dealing with the uh, criminal justice reform, we all, there's other things as well. Obviously when we talk about those uh, people who've been incarcerated for things like for, uh, drug possession, yeah. marijuana. I mean, we need, especially for marijuana that's now legal, we need to clear the backgrounds, you know, and give them that second chance in life, you know? We did pass a proposition that is supposed to be doing that, where these um, charges are supposed to be vacated and they're supposed to be released from prison. But my understanding is that there's a bit of a backlog on that, but that they are working towards completing that mission. Right. And we need to make sure that happens. And we also need to make sure that when we deal, we talk about people who have drug addictions, mm-hmm. that we address it as a healthcare issue, oh, not yeah. a criminal issue, 100%, you know? 100%. Um, and then when we talk about the mass incarceration issue, you know, it's, it's obviously there's hundreds of thousands of people that are sitting in jail waiting to even get some kind of uh to go and get some kind of uh, 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 go into trial or what have you, but they can't afford to pay the the bail. So they're stuck in there and they could be perfectly innocent, you know, and they're losing uh, work opportunities among many other things that are happening. Imagine if they have a family now and they're, you know, their family's suffering. So we have to deal with these issues, um, on a very multifaceted level when it comes to uh, criminal justice reform. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, we don't want to create a generation of people who are stuck in, um, uh, honestly, uh, when we create, when we do this to people, we're essentially setting them on a course where they can't get out of this life because Mm -hmm. we set them on a course that they can't, can't break out of. They can't function like everyone else in everyday society. Right. So if people want to donate to your campaign, Marisol, where should they go? Um, They can go to Marisol, M-A-R-I-S-O-L, number four, E-A, dot com. So that's Marisol, four, C-A, dot com. And your Twitter my Twitter is, is it's at, at yes it is it's at Marisol4CA 
We, I like to keep things consistent. Right? Well, no, that's good. <laughs> 